0: This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rolheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FrancisFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to The Francis Effect. We are beginning season nine. I am David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen, and I teach at Loyola University, Chicago's Institute of Pastoral Studies. I'm here with two of my good friends, Heidi Schlump from National Catholic Reporter and Dan Horan, who currently is in Indiana, and will explain why as we get into the program. But before we get into any of that summer catch-up, I want to say hello to you both. Heidi, hello. How are
1: you?
2: I'm great. Good to be with you.
0: And Father Dan, it's so good to be with
1: you. How are you doing today? I'm doing wonderfully. It's great to be with you both and I cannot believe it's season 9. So for those who are there who have been with us from the beginning, thank you. For those who are just joining us, thank you. You're most welcome.
0: And for those of you that are just joining us or who have just heard about the show, we get together every couple of weeks and we talk about current events and topics through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. We've been doing this for years, so we've got a large catalog of episodes you can go back to and listen to and if you think that just because we do t- topical programming, that uh, those things will fade from their relevance. What we're finding is that again and again, these topics are coming back around and we're always finding fresh things to say about them. So we're glad that you're with us today. And gosh, I'm glad to be back with the two of you. So we're going to be getting into a segment where we're catching up on kind of what we did last summer and what has changed from the time that we uh, last were here on the program. But for right now, I just want to thank everybody for being here. We're going to take a little break and we'll be right back with that.
2: Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf and I'm here today with Dan Haran and David Dalt Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Evening came and morning followed, the last day, the last day of summer, that is. We're recording this first new episode of the season on Labor Day, the traditional last day of summer, within the American context anyway, and as we start moving into fall, We wanted to take some time to look back on the summer and catch up on all that happened while we were in between podcast seasons. From a collective perspective, this summer began with celebration and hope as the COVID-19 pandemic appeared to be waning and normalcy seemed to be a possibility on the horizon. But the rise in the highly infectious Delta variant and the persistence of anti-vaxxers quickly dampened our early summer enthusiasm. Today, cases continue to rise even as vaccination rates have leveled off and even declined in some places. On an individual level, all three of us have experienced some notable changes and significant events in our personal and professional lives during this unusual summer. So as we officially wrap up the summer months and kick off this new podcast season, let's hear about what each of us has been up to since we last spoke on air. Dan, let's start with you. You had a very eventful summer. What have you been up to lately?
1: <laughs> eventful is an understatement. It is, it's the best of times and it is, well, the best of times, kind of shadowed by, as you mentioned, the Delta variant toward the end of our summer months especially. Um, it began with so much excitement and so much hope. Listeners will know that uh, June is not really a time off for theologians, that actually we move very quickly from the end of the academic year into what we call conference season. And so this year there were three academic conferences that I was uh, a part of, two of which I was on the planning committees for, so it was very busy. And we also had two ordinations, ordinations of my former students and that were able to be held in person, the second of which was actually able to be had, we had a, like in-person reception. And this was in early June, which was the first time I had been in kind of a room of other people without masks on eating. And it was wonderful to be with other friars. But as we know, that quickly changed as masks went back on in the months that followed. But in in terms of the ordinary busyness and uh, a brief kind of return to normalcy and sense of normalcy, two big events took place for me this summer, two significant things. The first is I spent the month of July in Italy, which sounds more exciting than it is. It wasn't vacation, but it was work on behalf of the church. So I was appointed what we call in Latin the theological paritus or a theological expert to the general chapter of the Franciscan order. And so a general chapter is when you have provincials, the kind of regional or local superiors, the Franciscan community come together from all around the world. In this case, it was about 140 friars from every continent, from every place where there are Franciscans, and there are about 13,000 of us globally. And we come together to... Take care of the business of the order, which includes legislation and documents and priorities, and then, of course, elections. The order elects its general governance, its leadership, including who we call the minister general. In other congregations and orders, they call them superiors, but Francis of Assisi was very egalitarian, and so no one's called superior but minister and servant. But the long and short of it is that w- we held an election. That is, we the order. I was not a voting member. I was there as a staff member, as as a theologian. But we have a new minister general who's Italian, Brother Massimo uh, Fusarelli, as well as the general council of the order. So it's a big event. It's really wonderful. It was done with a lot of cooperation among the Franciscan order the Holy See, that is the Vatican, and the Ministry of Health for the state of Italy. So there's a lot of moving parts. It was a success. We were kind of in that MBA bubble-like atmosphere for more than two weeks, where everybody had a test and quarantine, and and we had masks on, except when we were eating, basically. And it was wonderful and exhausting and, and a great success. So we were happy with that. We're supposed to have an audience with uh, Pope Francis. Unfortunately, he needed to go in for surgery, as the world may recall. That happened to be when we were over there, so that was unfortunate. But I did, just before the chapter began, had an opportunity to catch up with NCR's news editor. Josh used to be our Vatican correspondent. What's his title now again?
2: News editor is right. Sometimes we say national news editor.
1: National news editor, yeah. So Mm -hmm. he's making his way with with his spouse back to the United States, but saw them over in Rome, which was... Was nice. The other big event, and this is what David was alluding to in the introduction about where I am geographically, I've taken a new academic position. So for the last five years, I was on faculty at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. I am now the director of the Center for Spirituality and Professor of Philosophy, Religious Studies, and Theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. So I'm in South Bend, the land of Heidi's alma mater, which is across the street. Some school no one's ever heard of called Notre Dame. But St. Mary's is a wonderful, exciting, great school with a tremendous legacy. It's an all-women's college That dates back to 1844. And for those who are theology nerds will know the name sister Mataleva Wolf, who was instrumental in creating graduate programs for religious and lay women in the church. And so uh, there's a lot more to say about that, but it's an exciting place to be. It's an exciting mission uh, to be a part of, and it's uh, really cool to be here. And thanks to the wonders of technology, we're continuing our podcast in real time, but separate. So that's that, those are the things that are going on with me right now. Uh, Heidi, what's your summer been like? What, do you, what have you been up to?
2: Well, first, let me just say congratulations, Dan, on your new position. I have been to and covered so many events at the Center for Spirituality at St. Mary's over the years, and I'm really excited to see where you're going to Take it because I think they just have such a wonderful legacy at the college and with the center. So, congratulations to you.
1: Thank you. Um, Lots of great programming to come.
2: Yay. So, how has my summer been? Well, on the personal side, it was not that different than last summer. We did some getting out, some family trips. We went to my parents' lake house. We went to the Jersey Shore, but we were still pretty cautious, even though our whole family is vaccinated now. We were kind of avoiding large indoor events, indoor eating. We we're still masking at the grocery store and stuff like that. We did go to the Wisconsin State Fair, which is outdoors, and that we hadn't been able to do uh, last year and is one of our family traditions. I also was dealing with a little bit of a rotator cuff issue in my shoulder. So I'm hardly an athlete, so I don't know. It might have come from too much knitting or something. So that was new to me having to spend a fair amount of time in physical therapy, but I seem to be on the mend finally this fall. There was a lot going on, as you mentioned, at NCR. Joshua McElwee, who was our former Vatican correspondent, now the national news editor, moved back to the States. And Chris White, who was our former national correspondent and now our new Vatican correspondent, uh, was moving to Rome. He's just completed some intensive language instruction and is now starting his beat and will start it off with a bang with a papal trip to Hungary and Slovakia. We also brought on a couple of other new staff people to our team. Brian Fraga, people on Catholic Twitter may know his name, formerly was doing some work for our Sunday visitor. He's a staff reporter and has just hit the ground running, which we're very excited about. About And Melissa Cedillo, who had just finished her master's in theological studies, I believe, at Harvard, is the new fellow, uh, formerly we used to call them interns, but it's a more serious position now, in our Latino Catholics project, which I'm very excited the kinds of stories that she's bringing to NCR. Olga Segura, who had been our part time opinion editor, became full time in July. So we're really getting a strong team at NCR that I'm very excited about. They also, they, meaning my publisher and the board, decided to give me the additional title of vice president of NCR. This doesn't change my job. I'm still executive editor, but I think it was uh, a way of saying thank you to me for the work so far and to Indicate that I had a company wide role. So you don't have to call me Madam Vice President.
1: (laughs) But we will. Congratulations, Madam Vice President.
2: (laughs) I will just say I'm excited about what we're going to talk about today, our, our themes, but there was quite a bit of news over the summer. We stopped recording, I think, in May, right? So we had the June Bishops meeting. We had the whole Biden and communion controversy continued to be talked about. And I did a debate on the New York Times podcast called The Argument with uh, Russ that about that. Maybe we can link to that in the show notes. There also was a certain Catholic blog over the summer that outed a priest who, using location data, which brought up a lot of ethical, especially journalistic ethical issues for me anyway, We've got this Vatican trial going on with the former Secretary of State. Like you mentioned, the Pope was ill and hospitalized briefly. We've had debates about vaccines, including uh, some bishops giving religious exemptions and others encouraging priests not to. So it hasn't been too slow of a summer, but a little bit slower. And we are looking forward to fall now, especially with the podcast coming back. So. David, tell us what's new with you.
0: Well, first of all, I want to say congratulations to you, Heidi, on the well-deserved recognition of being named vice president. Dan, congratulations on your new position down there at St. Mary's. I'm really looking forward to getting the chance to work with you more collegially as a director of a spirituality program and me working in a spirituality program. I think that this is going to be a wonderful opening for more collaboration, not just on a podcast, but also on the academic front. So my summer was not quite as storied as the two of yours, but I did get a lot of work done. I taught a class in the Spiritualities of the Old Testament for Loyola University's Institute of Pastoral Studies. And had it, for a summer course, it was, we had 17 students, and it was really vibrant. And it's not a course I had ever taught before, so it was one of those things that we all kind of developed as we went along. I was learning right along with the students. We were reading some materials not just in the Christian traditions of the Old Testament, but we also looked a little bit into the Islamic tradition and a good deal into the Jewish traditions as well around these texts and really had a wonderful set of conversations around the spirituality that developed from those various traditions. One book is at the press. It's uh, a retread of my dissertation. The Covert Magisterium is in process of coming out. I think it's going to peer reviewers at the moment, and I have had a very productive summer revising the draft of my other book, The Accessorized Bible with Yale Press, and that I'm hoping to be able to get to the editor fully by the end of this month, and I'm very excited about that and beyond that it's just been kind of hanging out with the kids and getting them ready to go back to physical school and in and around that i've been trying to learn some languages and duolingo is my friend and so those are the things that i've been doing this summer
1: so i, th- I think you you set the expectations far too low david you've done a lot <laughs> well Those
0: that have listened for a while to the podcast, they know that sometimes I have periods of great productivity and other times I have periods where I get in my own way. And I'm very grateful that all of the stars kind of aligned this summer to where I wasn't getting in my way as much as I have in the past. And so when those clear moments arrive, I try and really utilize as much as I can to get as much done as I can. And even so, I wish that I had done more because you always want to get books finished instead of saying that they're almost finished. You always want to get other sorts of tasks all squared away and ready to go. But for the most part, I have no complaints. And I'm really glad to be back and doing the podcast now because I have missed the two of you. And I'm eager for these conversations to start up again. So, Dan, as you're moving forward in St. Mary's, what are some of the things that you're most excited about with that new position?
1: Well, there's a lot of stuff in the works right now. So listeners can keep an eye out on social media in particular. I'll be spreading some word about various upcoming events. Also look on Facebook for the St. Mary's College Center for Spirituality page. That's a great way to keep track of things that are coming. There's a lot of excitement on campus this fall, in part, not just exclusively with the Center for Spirituality, but we have a relatively new president who is absolutely awesome. Dr. Katie Conboy is the president of St. Mary's College. She became president in the midst of the last academic year in the COVID pandemic. And so her inauguration had been postponed until it was safer to do that, and that's gonna take place next month in October. So there are a lot of events that are taking place around the inauguration that's taking up um, a lot of good and, and, and kind of enthusiastic space as the whole campus is excited. So there's some smaller programs that are tied to that. I have a new book that just came out last week, I forgot to mention, <laughs> called uh, White Catholics Guide to Racism and Privilege, published by Ave Maria Press from Notre Dame, also across the street. And so we have a one event that's taking place in a couple weeks here in person and should be recorded and shared virtually for those who can't make it is a conversation between me and our Vice President for uh, Equity and Inclusion, Dr. Regina Hill, who is wonderful. She's she's extraordinary. And she and I are already planning a number of collaborative programs and events through the Center for Spirituality and the Division for Equity and Inclusion. And there are a couple other things that are coming too, mostly co-sponsored events for the fall since I'm just getting here on the ground, but keep an eye out in the spring. So as the season goes on, I'll be signaling additional uh, really exciting programs, particularly after the new year.
0: And I'll get some links for that in the show notes. Heidi, I know that it's always uh, a tricky thing to ask somebody that works in the news and the media what they're waiting for and hoping for the coming months. But is there anything that you're excited about on the horizon?
2: Oh, sure. We've got a lot coming up in the fall. Certainly things will happen that I'm not prepared for, but things that we're thinking about are, first of all, there's some papal trips coming up, as I mentioned. Chris is planning to go to Hungary and Slovakia with Pope Francis in just a couple, not even a couple weeks, so in mid-September. And then recently was announced a trip to, although not officially by the Vatican, but that the Pope will be going to Cyprus in early December. The Pope, I believe, is also, again, although not confirmed by the Vatican, planning to go to the UN Climate Summit in Scotland in November. And I know for sure our, our staff writer, our environmental correspondent from Earthbeat, is planning to be in Scotland, especially when the Pope is there. So Brian Roe will be covering for us then. November is going to be a busy month. That's the bishops' meeting that happens every year. And... At least the current plan is for it to be in person in Baltimore. NCR is organizing a special briefing for media and some of our members of NCR and supporters that will be include a panel with a, that will be uh, sharing more information about coming up. Uh, that will be the night before the meeting starts. We'll do it virtually if everything switches to virtual. But this, of course, is going to be a very consequential meeting. The whole issue of the Eucharistic coherence document which so many people are insisting now doesn't have anything to do with politicians and saying they can't go to communion if they support abortion policies. But we'll see, because that and a number of other things, I'm sure, will be discussed, and so it will be pretty pretty newsworthy. David, what do you have coming up this fall?
0: Well, I'm going to be finishing this book, and then I'm excited that I'm now at Kind of a, a more seasoned point at Institute of Pastoral Studies because I'm advising spirituality students in that program, and it's the largest program at our school. And so I'm really getting my feet under me with regard to what to watch out for in terms of pitfalls for students and how to help guide students. So I'm I always like to be at this point in a, a kind of set of knowledge where I know that I'm not getting things grievously wrong, and so that's exciting and watching that program grow over the past couple of years as I've taken the helm of it has been a lot of fun too. I'm excited because in addition to these books that I've been talking about that I'm getting done, there are some other books on the horizon. So when this book, The Accessorized Bible, gets finally off to the editor, I'm going to turn things kind of full focus to a project that I've been researching for a number of years, a biography of the Old Testament theologian Walter Brueggemann. And unfortunately, because of the delays in some of my other writing, I've had to put that on the back burner. And COVID has made it so that I haven't been able to get down to the archives and do the archival work that I've been wanting to do. So I'm hoping if things get kind of more safe for travel, that I'll have a chance to travel down to St. Louis and to Atlanta to do some of that archival work and to really get much more back into that project and get it really underway, get it with a publisher and just start writing it.
2: Yeah, I'm so impressed by all the writing you're doing, David. Keep up the (laughs) good work. Not to mention Dan, who comes out with a couple books every year.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and Dan, we're going to make sure to talk about your book on things not seen. I'm looking forward to that.
1: Sorry, a little podcast crossover for listeners. Make sure you subscribe to Things Not Seen. Yeah.
0: Well, I'm excited about all the things that are coming up for all of us. And I'm sure that especially for these more topical things, we'll find some ways to talk about them here on episodes to come. But for right now, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalton. and I'm here with Dan Haran and Heidi Schlumpf. Summer is supposed to be a slow, or at least slower, news time. But this summer, Pope Francis dropped some pretty big news, especially for those who prefer the Latin Mass, also sometimes called the Tridentine Mass or the Extraordinary Form. In an apostolic letter called Traditionis Custodes, released on July 16th, Pope Francis cracked down on celebrations of this older form of the liturgy. The new restrictions require celebrations of the Latin Mass to be approved by the local bishop after he determines whether or not the priest and congregation accept Vatican II. Newly ordained priests who want to celebrate it must get permission from the bishop and the Vatican, and bishops may no longer allow the formation of new pro-Latin Mass groups in their diocese. This reverses a major decision by his predecessor, Pope Benedict XVI, who in 2007 released a document called *Summorum Pontificum, which allowed the celebration of the Latin Mass and led to its expansion, at least in some countries. This has, not surprisingly, caused quite a negative reaction from Catholics who prefer the Latin Mass to the ordinary form, the one that most of us who grew up after Vatican II have known our whole lives. One monsignor compared the decision to, quote, an atomic bomb, unquote, and himself to an inmate on death row because of his fondness for the Latin Mass. This monsignor is actually the executive director of the Vatican Commission on English in the liturgy for the United States. Heidi, why would Pope Francis make such a controversial decision and why now?
2: Thanks, David. I can answer that in one word, and the word is unity. So, after surveying the bishops from around the world, Pope Francis finally understood what we've known here in the U.S. for a while, or at least many of us have realized, that in too many instances, the celebration of the Latin Mass has divided the church and fueled the polarization. So not all who enjoy a a more traditional version of the mass are in this camp, but a large number, in addition to preferring that mass, also reject other teachings of Vatican II. Some of those groups, I think, have become so politicized that their Catholicism more resembles the Republican Party in the U.S. than the universal church. So we've been noting this for a while at NCR, and it was interesting to see after Pope Francis's motu proprio in July, one of our articles from 2019 all of a sudden started getting a lot of traffic, and the title of it was The Latin Mass Becomes a Cult of Toxic Tradition. So this was written by a German writer who talked about the clericalism, the oppression of women. The um, excessive focus on black and white rules and rigidity. And sadly, I think the reaction from people who are in Latin Mass communities or celebrate the Latin Mass has only proved Pope Francis's point that this is divisive. One of the examples, aside from the ISIL Monsignor who compared it to an atomic bomb, uh, Michael Brendan Doherty, a Catholic who wrote in the New York Times an editorial in reaction, talked about how this would be so difficult for his children to return to the ordinary form of the mass. He said it's not their religious formation. Frankly, the new mass is not their religion. Now, if that doesn't spell schism, I don't know what does. And Michael Sean Winters in his column said too often in these Latin mass communities, schism is in the air along with the incense. So I'm curious what your are Reactions have been. I'm not someone who has participated in Latin Mass regularly. I've been to one or two, usually covering things. What's your experience?
1: Well, you know, I totally agree with Pope Francis and your comments just now, Heidi. I think, you know, to give Benedict XVI the benefit of the doubt, because I think there are some reactions that have suggested that this is sort of a, an outright reversal of, of Benedict XVI, a motu proprio that loosened the restrictions around celebration of Latin Mass where I would push back a little bit to those who would have that perspective is that Benedict Sixteenth is and was a lot of things, a prayerful man, a very smart theologian, very intellectual, but as demonstrated by his own reasoning for retiring from the papacy, he is not somebody who necessarily sees the kind of political consequences, the practical consequences of things that he's used to thinking about at a deep, profound, abstract level like theological reflection, like philosophy. And so it it strikes me that the Pope Emeritus could not have imagined the ways in which over the last decade plus that his trying to do something nice again the road to hell is paved with good intentions try to allow people to enjoy a certain kind of asceticism a certain kind of stylistic approach to the liturgy some people will comment that they're in and, and i hear this in, in the remark you made heidi quoting from uh, the new york times op-ed that Some people see something a little bit deeper there, and that's when it becomes problematic, even before it gets to the kind of secular political sectarianism. What we have is a misunderstanding of tradition. One of the things that irks me the most as a theology professor is to hear people talk about uh, the Latin Mass, and here they're talking about they're usually using the 1962 Missal, which is the last revised. Tridentine liturgy. So we're not talking about that long ago, by the way, in terms of the most recent of the rite itself. But people will sometimes refer to it as, quote, the traditional Latin mass, or on Twitter, TLM. We need to address what tradition is and what it is not. First of all, There's nothing traditional about the Tridentine Mass that dates back to the 16th century. There's nothing more traditional about it than what is the ordinary rite that we celebrate in the Roman Church today. And what I mean by that is the Second Vatican Council famously in its sacramental and its scriptural reforms went back to the sources. This is what ressourcement means in French. And part of what was discovered by the historians, the theologians, the uh, theological paridi was was the fact that a lot of what was going on in the last four centuries around the celebration of the Eucharist was a bunch of accretions. These were things that were added, things that do not have ancient theological significance, but stuff that started surfacing in the early Renaissance and late medieval periods. By contrast, the liturgy that we celebrate in the vernacular today, which its ordinary form is actually ironically in Latin and is translated from Latin into modern languages, is more traditional in the literal sense, that it goes back to the early church, to the first centuries, to the ancient documents and practices and rites of Catholicism. So I just need to get that off my chest because a lot of people say, well, this is the traditional at mass, this is older, this other thing's only 50 years old. And that's not correct. That's just simply errant.
0: One thing that I would say, I'm a convert, so I did not grow up Catholic. And when I first came into the church, I think that I really had a romanticism about ancient things. And I had gone to an Episcopal college and so was familiar with the way that Episcopal liturgies run, and it's very ornate, lots of smells and bells, very high church. And I was actually kind of disappointed when I would go to most Catholic masses, particularly in the South, to see them kind of be low church. And I was like, I wish that this was more smells and bells like the Episcopalians. As I got closer to people that were really kind of pushing these kind of, quote, traditional, unquote, masses, one of the things that I realized was that what attracted me to the Catholic Church was its universality and the fact one friend of mine, in fact, said that it was, it was like being on a crosstown bus, that like every strata of society comes to mass. I really grew to love that. But when I would go to these more kind of traditional minded masses, and I'm scare quoting tradition again, what I found was that the masses became increasingly more white, more affluent, and that really began to bother me. And so I don't have a deep knowledge of all the people that love and participate in TLMs and various forms of Tridentine masses. I can only say from anecdotal observation that they tend to be more exclusive. They tend to not vocally speak so much about things like racial reconciliation and racial welcome than other masses that I've encountered. So I'd be interested in kind of getting more kind of thought about that as well, just the collusion of these more traditional masses with either petty or major bigotries.
1: When that may be true in certain contexts, I think we'd get a lot of pushback from those who are fond of of this particular celebration of the liturgy and the communities that, are, are, that spring up around them. I will say that I do know folks who are more liturgically, quote-unquote, conservative. Again, these descriptors mean very little because it's all relative in some sense. What's conservative? What's liberal? What's traditional? What's modern? Things get skewed. But people who would identify with a fondness for this celebration, who who are concerned about social justice issues and and the like, I think you're right in the sense that that they racially it tends to be a lot more white. But then again, that's my experience of the Midwestern and Northeastern celebrations of Latin mass communities. The one other thing I would say is just I, I do understand why some people are drawn to this. Part of it is, like you said, David. Oftentimes, it's a lot of converts, to be quite frank, or re- reverts, as it were, people who have left the church and want a very, as Heidi said earlier, black and white worldview. They want clear answers. They want simplicity, which Christianity is not the religion for you, if that's what you're looking for, by the way, as a side note. But but I do understand that you know there is sort of an overcorrection, the pendulum swinging too much the other way in light of some of the experiments, to use a kind of vague term, that that followed after the Second Vatican Council, which were also, I would say, less about the theological substance, which is profound and spirit-guided of the Second Vatican Council, and more a reflection of cultural and social trends that you found in the 60s and 70s. So I, I do understand that people want a quieter space. They wanted something that seemed a little bit more distinct from their ordinary life, including an an ancient language. The current ordinary form, which is, again, more traditional, can be celebrated in Latin too, just like it can be celebrated in English or French or German or Swahili.
2: Yeah, I think I agree with what you're you're both saying. There, are, much has been made about how, at least in the United States, the Latin Mass is attracting these younger Catholics, and so this must be where the enthusiasm is or the area of growth for the Church. And I, I guess I would push push back on that a little bit. First of all, Pope Benedict uh, expanded the use of the Latin Mass in part to bring back into the fold Catholics who had rejected Vatican II liturgical reforms and and other things about Vatican II, sadly. So initially, the Latin Mass might have been people who were left over. They had grown up celebrating it that way and didn't want to change in the 60s and 70s. It is true that the majority of people who attend the Latin Mass now— For them, that is not the case. It's not the celebration of their youth. It's something that, as you said, David, was interesting, mystical, ancient thing. And I actually have a lot of sympathy or empathy for that. And I think there's room for people to have more, like you said, quiet, Dan, or more mystical experiences, while still recognizing that the celebration of the mass is a communal thing. It's not individual prayer. It's not individual time for individual, just me and Jesus holiness. So I tell a story about how for a number of years when I was practicing yoga, much more intently than I am now, especially with the shoulder injury, I got involved in some of the other things that go along with yoga, including Hindu chant and music. And I, I remember going to one of these concerts and listening to this chant in, in Hindu and kind of enjoying it and feeling a mystical experience. And of course, I had no idea what they were saying and I was not connecting with the content of it. But I had an insight into how maybe people who experience mass in Latin also see that as a a spiritual experience. The thing I like about Catholicism, as you said, David, is there's room for all of that. What there isn't room for is people who say that their version of the mass, if the Latin mass, is somehow the only true one, the better one. The somehow superior one and that's what we are getting too often from some of these groups who are are really some of them even bordering on not accepting Pope Francis so or even the papacy so and Vatican II. So I'm hoping that this could lead to ordinary masses having a little more maybe a Latin chant or you know Latin mass people having a little more experience of the importance of the people of God. I'm afraid that's not where we're going though it looks like it's becoming just one more divisive thing in our church.
1: And I think that point is well put that it's not the language itself that people like. It's that they don't know what it
2: means,
1: (laughs) you know, to put it overly simplistic. And now there will be people who who do take time to learn Latin or to learn at least and follow along what's going on in the liturgy. But I think your experience of the Hindu parallel is very commonplace. And I couldn't agree more that. Regardless of which rite, RITE, one celebrates in the Roman tradition or one of those Eastern traditions in communion with Rome, so whether it's in Syriac or whether it's Syro Malabar or whether it's the Melkite rite and so forth, those are different RITEs altogether. There's room for that inclusivity, like we've talked about. The thing that makes one Catholic, though, is what you opened with, Heidi, which is unity, is the communion that we have. So it's it you have to be in communion with the local bishop who symbolizes the communion of the local church to the church universal, which is why in the Eucharistic prayer we mention the local bishop's name and Pope Francis's name. And I think I would actually push a little bit further. You said that they're almost anti-Pope Francis. There are some who are very proudly sede vacantist in this way, that they believe that Pope Francis is illegitimate or what have you. And and that is by definition some excommunicating They're no longer in communion with the church universal. And so can they be called Catholic? That's That, as you said earlier, is really the concern I think the Holy Father has and, and is a really important one. And one that I think, frankly, Benedict XVI would agree with Pope Francis on this. He was trying to do something that was opening the gates a little bit wider, trying to include people, which is ironic, again, when people oftentimes think of Benedict XVI, they think about his homily in 2005, where he talked about the, the, the specter of relativism in this smaller, more kind of elite church of some sort. But in fact, he was doing this to be more broadly inclusive, but that's backfired. And maybe it was a mistake. I, I don't know, but I do know that at least 10, 15 years later, it's become a real problem, as we've said.
0: So for many of these people that kind of hold to the traditional Latin mass in whatever kind of way we want to think about that, they're really thinking about some kind of essence of Catholicism. They really want to get back to a pure nugget of truth in Catholicism, and they're afraid that modernism or whatever has eroded that. One of the things that I think about a lot as a person who does theological reflection on the church a lot, and kind of theological reflection on identity, I tend to place that, that nugget in a different location, and it's in the notion of hospitality, in the notion of merciful forgiveness and inclusion and welcome of the stranger. So for me, there's a fundamental kind. Kind of ideological disconnection here between what we think the church is. And I wonder how listeners who maybe feel similar tensions between uh, a kind of the church that they love, which is forgiving and merciful, and the church that they oftentimes see articulated not just by laypeople but by bishops, which is hard and macho and very exclusive, how do we reconcile this into a church that has unity?
1: That is the question.
2: (laughs) (laughs) We need a whole nother segment for that.
1: (laughs) But I think that is, I mean, back to Heidi's opening point, I think that's what Pope Francis is trying to do. Again, he, as the Bishop of Rome, is the one who holds the office that symbolizes the unity and union and communion of the church, the koinonia in Greek. And I I, I don't know. I think think there's a way in which we're inclined to think of life in the church as a zero-sum game, an either-or, and yet we're both and. There are parameters. There's a lot of room for flexibility, as we've been talking about. So how do we get to that unity? I think people have to want to choose it. And the way I often think about this is the work of the Holy Spirit. They have to want to be co-cooperators with God, or as Augustine would say, gratia cooperans, right? To cooperate with God's grace. The other thing I would say is I think that there's a challenge that that goes all the way back to Pope Francis's exhortation Evangelii Gaudium back from 2013. When he talked a lot in there about the importance of preaching, the importance of preparation for celebrating the liturgy. And I think there's a way in which I'm not saying that the Latin Mass enthusiasts have anything right here, but I do think that the ordinary form, the traditional form of the Roman Rite People still have not been well formed in in understanding what's going on. So the need for teaching liturgies, for instance, a couple times a year in a parish so people know what is going on here and what is my role in this and what is the presider doing and what are these different ministers about and what is the theology behind this? When you have a vacuum of information like that, people are going to look for things that they think are meaningful and project meaning into it. And I think that's one of the things that the Latin mass allows for is there's not a whole lot of explanation in part because these historical accretions, that there are a lot of weird things that go on. And I don't mean to be derogatory. They're just simply weird because they're not theologically sound that are part of this right that people project meaning onto or importance that is not theologically sustainable. So we have a lot of work to do as a faith community is my take.
0: Well, I'm certain that we will have more opportunities to speak about these issues as this season goes on. But for right now, we need to take a break. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment.
1: Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, as you know, we get together to explore topics through a lens informed by our shared Catholic faith. And as we tape this episode, students across the Chicago area and across the country have just started back to school. Even after more than 600,000 deaths in the U.S. since the start of the pandemic, the guidance at both federal and state levels for how to proceed and protect our vulnerable citizens has been, well, very mixed. Vaccination rates are much lower than expected, and many states are not only refusing to enact mandatory masking, but are in fact heading in the opposite direction with some governors using their emergency powers to undermine even the most basic and common-sense safety measures at the local level. For Catholics, the guidance has been equally muddy. Despite the clear instructions from the Vatican that it is morally acceptable to receive any of the currently available COVID-19 vaccines, both some bishops and many lay people continue to resist getting vaccinated. It actually encouraged some to not be vaccinated. But as a December document from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith makes clear, quote, the morality of vaccination depends not only on the duty to protect one's own health, but also on the duty to pursue the common good, unquote. David, you've got two children who are not yet old enough to be vaccinated. This is obviously a very pressing issue for you and for them and for the broader community. How is your family navigating this and what do you think about it?
0: Well, I'll say, first of all, how grateful I am to live in Illinois. I look at Tennessee, where I spent 13 years of my life. I look at Georgia, where I spent 19 years of my life, and I'm seeing the spiking rates and the retrograde approaches to public health going on down there. And I'm so fearful for my friends and loved ones that live in those areas. And then I look at areas adjacent to that, so Arkansas and Florida, which are both kind of close to Tennessee and Georgia, where the governors are, in fact, doing what we've What you just mentioned, Dan, they're actually actively suppressing local attempts to put in mask mandates or to do anything that might be supportive of public health. And then finally, the thing that really is just breaking my heart and turning my stomach is looking at someone like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who is actively opposing very easy measures like masks, which are low cost comparatively, but is pushing something like Regeneron, which is a monoclonal antibody that he has investments in and that his main supporters come from the pharmaceutical companies that produce this, and so he's holding press conferences that basically say, well, here's a good treatment. It's a very expensive treatment, and it's a treatment that will fill the coffers of my financial backers, but it's the treatment that I'm going to suggest is the right one for Floridians, even though it's a treatment that comes not from prevention, but after someone has been infected, and it's perpetuating the problem. So as the father of young children, I'm very thankful that I live in Illinois, but even with that, we have been... kind of terrified having our kids going back to school, because even though Illinois is doing better than a lot of other states, it still is not the kind of common sense protections that we'd like to see for unvaccinated elementary school kids going back into the classrooms. And even though we've got a very good neighborhood school, we trust the school. There's still a lot of points where we're kind of wringing our hands and not sure what to do. And Heidi, you've got young children as well. I don't quite know how you're navigating this, but I'd love to hear your thoughts as well.
2: Sure. Well, I'm, never been so grateful that my children are 12 and 13. So they were able to get vaccinated right away. And because of one of my child has some underlying health issues, we did not send our kids back to in-person school all of last year until they were able. So now they're finally vaccinated. So they're back in the Chicago public schools. This fall, we've gotten through one week of school because CPS this year went back before Labor Day, which is also new and so far so good in, in just one week. I think the overall vaccination rate in Chicago among public school students is about half, although it varies very much by neighborhood. We live on the north side where vaccination rates are higher, but our daughter at least is in a school that's very economically diverse. So um, I suspect that the vaccination rate is probably around half or, or less. So we have concerns. I was encouraged to see that a recent poll found that actually Catholics' vaccination rates in the United States were higher than many other religious groups, double that or more of white evangelicals, for example. And actually, Hispanic Catholics' vaccination rate is even higher than white Catholics' vaccination rates. Sadly, what we're hearing a lot about, because they may not be a large group, but they are vocal, are people who are very against vaccination. So there's been some delineation between people who are hesitant and people who are totally opposed. So hesitant might be, I don't know if I can get off work, if I'm going to have no side effects. I don't have transportation or people who maybe are, are suspicious of the healthcare system because of their previous experiences of it, but who could probably be convinced to get a vaccination. But the people who are opposing it, and some of them claiming a religious reason, again, connected to the fetal cell lines that have been used, that's getting a lot of press and causing a lot of controversy in the church because a couple groups of of Catholics, uh, namely the Colorado bishops and this bioethics center, tried to provide a document that parish priests could use to give their parishioners, that to give them a religious exemption that they could then take their employer who might be requiring vaccines. But very quickly, many other groups of bishops from a number of cities and states said, no, this is not church teaching. And, you know, you mentioned, Dan, that it's somewhat muddy, but really it's pretty clear. The Pope even did that special PSA over the summers saying the Catholic Church does not teach that these vaccines are morally wrong and that uh, while people always do have the choice of conscience to do whatever they want to do and suffer the consequences, it is not against church teaching.
1: Well, and, and the actual arbiter of what is or is not church teaching and what kind of stands in the gray area is... Famously, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith and the Prefect of the CDF made clear last year that precisely what you said—that the Holy Father has been the greatest messenger of, for sure. Yeah, I also wanted to to pick up on two points. One is to lift up people like Bishop McElroy of the Diocese of San Diego, Archbishop Gustavo of the Archdiocese of San Antonio, the Bishop, uh, the Archbishop of Atlanta recently, and and many others have been. Not only telling people to to be vaccinated, which is the morally right thing to do, but have ordered their priests, they are not authorized to give... Roman Catholics a religious exemption. There is no Roman Catholic religious exemption for this vaccine. And how could there be when the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith made clear that actually you ought to be taking this? And at the top he had that quote from that document that said that it's not just about your own choice or your own health, it's about the common good. And I think that gets lost sight of a lot, where we become deeply individualistic, and that's very upsetting. The other thing I want to highlight is, Heidi, you mentioned this Bioethics Institute, and it's It's located in Philadelphia. It has a name that makes it sound authoritative and inclusive and scientific, and it is none of those things. It is a right-wing partisan institute that's funded by organizations and individuals with a particular political and ecclesiastical ideology. They're very anti-LGBTQ. They're very anti-vaccination. They're very anti-government assistance, all these kinds of things that are supported, again, by the church and by Catholic social thought. So I think that's really important to raise, that people need to be very careful about what they cite and what information they get and from where, because things that seem to present a veneer of authority or authenticity are oftentimes beneath the surface playing a dangerous game. And this is one of them. So look to what the Holy Father's saying, look to what the Vatican says, the CDF, look to what your local bishop says, and not these partisan groups.
0: Let me ask a technical follow on to that because I live here in Chicago and, and Heidi does too under the leadership of Cardinal Blaise Supich. And Cardinal Supich is one of the bishops that put out a letter instructing priests to say, you're not allowed to give this kind of religious exemption. I saw some pushback in social media that said, well, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith said that conscience should be the the guide here. And so I saw some that were wanting to be anti-vaccination and use Catholic reasoning to kind of say, well, conscience and the CDF trump your local bishop. And so I'm wondering kind of how that plays out on a technical level.
1: Yeah, Simple answer. The church makes very clear that the conscience is the highest authority when it comes to moral discernment. However, it's not conscience does not equal do whatever you want and feel like or think or have an opinion about. It is about a well formed conscience. And the question you have to ask when reading that or hearing that the well formed conscience is the highest moral authority for discernment in, in these cases the question is well, what is informing your conscience? If it's partisan groups, if it's Facebook posts, if it's your own personal disinterest, distrust, or concern, if it's any of these things, then you're not being morally and faithfully informed. So the teaching, for instance, of the Cardinal Archbishop of Chicago or your local bishop or the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith or the Holy Father, Pope Francis, those are authentic, legitimate, sound Sources to form your conscience. So that that argument is really, it falls flat. It's absurd, actually, because what people are, in in a sense, saying when they want to claim recourse to conscience, in this particular case, it's they want to do what they want to do, and they're deliberately obscuring Catholic teaching about conscience.
2: Yeah, and I would just add, of course, this is what more conservative Catholics have always said to progressive Catholics who have differed with a a particular church teaching after forming their own consciences, is that, sure, you have this right to your conscience, but you have to have it formed, and that does not absolve you from the consequences of following your conscience. That's not church teaching that you can, as you said, Dan, do whatever you want and just have no ramifications at all. And it seems rather ironic coming from people who were clamping down on on others who were following their conscience over less life and death issues. So that comes off as not very uh, authentic to me.
0: So if I'm hearing correctly, when the CDF in that document that we quoted at the top of this segment says, yes, personal good, but also the common good has to be taken into account here. That's an important piece. And then when we see people who are saying, well, I'm worried about my own personal safety, then that's not the evidence of a well-formed conscience in that way. Am I hearing that correctly or... or
1: well, I I don't know about that last point, because the last point, it depends. I mean, the thing is, we do not, despite the desire of some well-meaning people, Catholicism is not a list of propositional claims that you just assent to and just follow like a rule book. So the context really matters. The situation matters. So, for instance, we don't just have what are called sins of commission, which is you actively cause harm or do something to break relationship with another or oneself and with God. But we also acknowledge, as we do at the beginning of every liturgy, the things we have failed to do, sins of omission, and they are equally sinful. So the failure to receive the vaccine when you are medically able to and you have access to it may, in this case, constitute a sin of omission. And so because one is Concerned about themselves and puts themselves over the common good, the greater good of the entire community, I think there's a case that could be made about the inherent sinfulness of that decision. It doesn't, that's not what recourse to conscience means. In this case, it's a recourse to selfishness, to self interest. And I want to make a, an important caveat that hasn't come up so clearly in our conversation, which is there are some people, part of why those who are medically able to receive the vaccine. Ought to receive it and why the church is insisting on this officially is because there are women and men and children who, because of health conditions, their immunocompromised, for instance, where they're undergoing cancer treatment, they cannot, even though they might desire to receive the vaccine, cannot receive it. So it is a charitable act. It is a work of mercy. It is the right thing to do. And recourse to one's own discomfort is is not compelling. That is not a, a sufficient response.
2: I also think we could label as sinful the fact that we are literally throwing away doses of the vaccine here in the United States because people are not using them or going to get vaccinated when there are people around the world who do not have access to this life-saving vaccine and would literally die for it. And so I think a sin of omission might be our country's um, not only being grateful for what we do have and taking advantage of it and getting vaccinated if you're able, but also to put more pressure to bear on our elected officials to make sure that the vaccine is available around the world. We're never going to conquer this virus if we don't vaccinate the entire world, because otherwise we're just going to keep having these new strains coming up and having Uh, reemergences of the virus. So this is an issue that I think is also very much a social justice and a religious issue.
0: Something else that struck me as I was preparing for this segment, I actually went back and read that letter from the CDF, and what struck me about it was it acknowledges these vaccines are not perfect. They were not created in a perfect way. They do have connection to fetal cell lines, things that under other circumstances would be of moral consequence. But at this particular moment, because they're the best that we have, that that is what is compelling in this moment for the reasons that Heidi has said and others. I'm really, interested in the pragmatism of the document, that it's not trying to argue against the good in favor of the perfect, and it's not saying delay until we get the perfect. And I think that for those that haven't read the letter or have only heard commentary on the letter, I think that sometimes gets muddied. Yes, it would be great if we had a morally untainted vaccine. We don't, and we have people dying, and that's why we need to be really kind of moving in this direction at the exhortation of the CDF, not to wait for a perfect moral situation, but instead to kind of maneuver with what we have. Now, That's my reading of it, and if you've got other readings, I'd love to hear about them, but that's kind of my takeaway.
1: Well, and I think this harkens back to the last segment when we were talking about some of our fellow Catholic sisters and brothers who are drawn to things like Latin Mass communities, uh, not just the liturgy itself, but but the thinking and the spiritualities that are very present in these communities of self-identifying Catholics, which is a clearer black and white world view: Church is good, world is bad. This is good, that is bad. But the truth is, like you said, David— things are far more complicated than that. And that has always been the case and will continue to be the case forever and ever. Amen. And this is what's difficult and complicated. This is why the church teaches the role of the well-formed consciences, because there isn't a little index that we can look to and say, oh, I, I, there's a global pandemic. Should I or shouldn't I take the vaccine? Turn to page 28 and you get your answer. That does not exist and cannot exist in Catholicism. And so I do also appreciate the, as you call it, the pragmatic of the CDF, but I also don't want to dwell on that too much because I don't think it's, it's particularly uh, insightful or instructive because all of these things are complicated. You use this great phrase, morally perfect or something like that, or, you know, there, there is no such thing.
2: I would also just highlight the part about what we are doing for ourselves or our family. And certainly I became vaccinated. I got my children vaccinated out of a certain self-interest about our own health and well-being. And, and that's my responsibility, obviously, as a parent. But so many of the things we've done throughout this pandemic are also about other people. So even this summer when everyone was very excited about the chance to be back in unmasked and out with people we haven't seen for a long time, we were cautious. We continued to wear masks when we went to the grocery store. Not And and at that time, we didn't even know about breakthrough infections or about the Delta variant. We were just saying, hey, we're vaccinated, but little kids aren't and people with cancer aren't. And just to be on the safe side, I'm going to wear this mask. And so I think it's pretty clear that Jesus is teaching, that the teaching of our church is to be concerned not only about ourselves, but about others. And Pope Francis summed it up so nicely in that video video that he did, it's to get vaccinated is an act of love towards other people in in the world. And I think no Catholic could argue with that.
1: And I don't know where in the Gospels somebody who would want to make a claim that their own self-interest should supersede that of the common good in others, as you're saying, Heidi, I don't know recourse they would have. The the, the quotes that come to mind for me are things like, there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for their friend. If that's what Jesus is talking about, getting a vaccination, if you're medically able to do so, is far less than having to lay your life down. It may be laying down your own fears or discomfort or agenda, um, but I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's right. It is about others. and, And can we stop being so selfish?
2: I think it's the gospel of individualism is where you would find that. (laughs) I do want to acknowledge that there are people who have... Legitimate concerns um, who are not just being, you know, obstinate about refusing to educate their consciences. And from what I've read, I haven't had a lot of personal experience with this. The best way to reach those th- folks is through being open and listening to their concerns, providing them with truthful information. And so I don't want to just judge that everyone is being unfairly obstinate or self- selfish. I do think there are people, again, have a variety of reasons for either waiting or being tentative, but we should help move them towards doing the right thing.
0: I'm certain that we will also have more opportunities to talk about COVID and the social effects of it on episodes to come. But for right now, we've reached the end of this episode of The Francis Effect. Father Dan, Heidi, I'm so glad to be back with the two of you. Thank you for being here today.
2: Thank you, David and Dan, and and thanks to all our listeners who are returning to hear the podcast as well.
1: Yeah, great to be with you both and to, yeah, all of our listeners, spread the word.
0: Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media LLC and is recorded remotely in Chicago, Illinois and South Bend, Indiana. It's edited by me at the William Adams Studios in Hyde Park on Chicago's beautiful South Side. The opinions of this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any organizations with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout-out to the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not affiliated with our program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it very much. Please check out their good work at slmedia.org. This show is made possible in part by our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash FrancisFXPod. We appreciate it very much. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at FrancisFXPod, and our website is also FrancisFXPod.com. Please tell your friends about the show, and if you're here for the first time, we have seasons and seasons of episodes that you can go back to and listen to for your heart's content. We're so glad that you're here. Heidi and Father Daniel and I will be back in about two weeks. We're looking forward to being with you then. Thank you again for listening.